welcome to the Future of Application Security, a podcast for ambitious leaders who want to build a modern and effective AppSec program. Doing application security right is really hard. Now I'm going to help you build a better future of AppSec at your company by curating the lessons from the leaders. I'm your host, Harshal Parikh, CEO of Tromso. And without further ado, let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Future of AppSec. Today, we are going to talk about one of the most difficult topics that every single security team faces, which is hiring and retaining a high-performing team. Now, to demystify this topic, we have an incredible guest with us, Caleb Seema. Caleb is currently the CISO at Robinhood, and over his 20-plus years of security career, he has been a security researcher, a serial entrepreneur, and a security leader at companies like Databricks and Capital One. Caleb, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be on it. Caleb, you've done a lot of amazing things over a long career in cybersecurity. Uh, We can probably do a whole podcast on just your career journey. But one of the things that fascinates me is that over a period of years, you've started several companies. You've been a serial entrepreneur building companies like Spy Dynamics, Armorize, Blue Box Security. And then surprisingly, you came back into the corporate world as a security leader. That doesn't happen very often. I'd love to know what incentivized you to come back into the world of running security organizations as a CISO and leave the startup world aside. You know, I get that question a lot because most people are like, (laughs) don't you go the opposite direction? People go from operations into starting their companies. Why would you go backwards? And so it's an interesting question. So let me tell you just sort of what happened. So after my last company was acquired Blue Box, I really was looking around and trying to think of, you know, what's the next thing that I want to go build, right? What's the next idea that's cool to go do? And I started going through all of the different problem sets and looking at all of the amazing startup companies that were popping up everywhere that were solving and building really, really cool technology right? But yet when you look at the reality of how people are getting breached, they're getting breached through really common standard things. Like I left a database open on the internet with no authentication. I did not patch this server, right? Like there's all of these very, very simple things. And like, I was like, well, why do we have all this really cool technology? And actually my last company really focused on like mobile application, like runtime protection stuff, mm-hmm. but yet the hacks and the breaches are happening from very simplistic things. And so I thought I saw this really big disconnect that was there. And so I was like, okay, well, let me, like, I can go talk to a bunch of CISOs and really like try to figure out what's going on. Or I was like in my entire career, I've been in, in security since the nineties. So I'm pretty old in this industry. I've never really just been a defender, like actually go in the war zone, out in the field, and try to figure out how to defend against real attackers. And so I was like, well, I can go talk to people or I can just go do it. And so I made that transition. And that's when I joined Capital One as sort of my first entry into this, what I call the battlefield, right? Right. Because, you know, I feel like as a vendor, when you're making tools, it's almost like you're like the weapons you know, maker, the weapons manufacturer and dealer, but you're not in the battlefield actually fighting the enemy. 
And so going out into the operations field gives you this real amazing opening of eyes to say, wow, like this is the decision that you've got to make on the field. Here's the real problems that are going on. And so when I did that, my plan actually was, I wasn't supposed to do this more than two years. I was actually supposed to do this for two years. I was going to like figure it out out. And then like, I learned people, you know, Hey, like Caleb, you're, you're, you're actually quite good at this. And two, I happen to enjoy it quite a lot because, you know, you're really in the fire and you really know what, what the real issues are. And so that's sort of what led this, this, this transition and capital one led to Databricks Databricks led to Robinhood. And I'll be blunt, like Databricks was going to be my last operations gig. I was like, at the end of Databricks, like I'm going to go start my own thing and do it. And Robinhood just kind of came out of the middle of nowhere and sucked me in. And so I'd like to say, I think I'm going to put a stamp on it here. Robinhood is my last operations <laughs> gig and uh, doing this. Uh, but that's sort of what led me into this area and how that transition occurred. That's amazing. I, I appreciate the fact that you decided not to just throw a bunch of buzzwords together and raise millions of dollars to, to build yet another security product. That's awesome. So, so tell me about you having gone through this experience of being a leader of the company, starting a business, which is so much similar to what we do as CISOs on a day-to-day basis, although on a different scale, like you're managing risk every single day, different types of risk, but you're managing that, you're focusing on hiring, you're trying to figure out what, what could go wrong around the corner. Um, has that experience of running a business given you any different perspective than what you know, traditional security people, traditional CISOs would have? I mean, I believe so, right? I mean, the real question is asking sort of my team and others, but my entrepreneurial background has absolutely flavored the way that I uh, I am a CISO in, in the aspect that I think of the security team as its quote unquote, its own entity, right? And as a company, we are serving our customers, but our customers happen to be our partners in the organization, right? It's engineering, it's marketing, it's sales, it's right. customer support. Like all of those are have become our customers. And so when I think about both the philosophy of building a team, running the organization, uh, looking at how we solve problems and what does that look like, I really look at it through this aspect of this sort of you know lens of okay, if I'm the CEO. How to like, what are the direct reports? What are the different things we think of? Like, you know, simplistic example, just because you build something doesn't mean they'll come, right? Mm-hmm. You have to sell it. You have to market it. You have to have a go-to-market plan. Like all of these things apply right inside of an organization. I don't want to just go to the engineering group and say, well, you have to use this. I want to go there. I want to advertise it. I want to market it to them. I want to give them the options. I want the availability so that they have the right customer support pipeline to work with us. I want the right NPS capability, right? The NPS score (laughs) of what their experience is with us as a business. And so I think a lot of that thought process really does flavor both the way I hire and the way I operate. That is so cool, man. Like it's it's not very often that I hear this customer focus from the security teams and customer meaning internal customers like engineering, IT, what have you. A lot of times what ends up happening is security team gets a, a lot of money or some money to buy a bunch of tools and they buy those tools. And you know, year after year, they realize that nobody's actually using it. Developers not looking at it. DevOps teams are not looking at it. And 
people are not able to figure out like why are we actually not seeing adoption but exactly going back to what you said if you build doesn't mean they will come you have to sell it to them you have to make their life a little bit easier and i think there's a similar topic around make the secure path the easiest path right to, to drive adoption of the secure practices i think that's super important to build a collaborative function of security along with the rest yep. of the company now going back to the most important topic that i'd love to hear your thoughts about in terms of building that team hiring that team you know almost everyone we talk to they would say hiring is my number one priority like everyone says that what does it really mean in your opinion like how does that change from like just talking about hiring as number one priority to like day-to-day things in terms of how do you actually make it a priority? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'll, I'll I'll sort of caveat a lot of things, which is it depends on you know where you are in the in the building of your team, what tools and avenues are available to you, how much support do you have in the organization, right? Budget-wise versus resource-wise versus time-wise. I think a lot of those things are variables in this, but you know, here's what I'll say is I'll say that overall, I think it starts with a philosophy, which, which people are the most important at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what you have or what money you've got or what tools you have. If you don't have great people, you have nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so can we get everybody to agree on that philosophy? Right. And I think we can. And then the next thing is, okay, if we do agree on that philosophy, then how do we operationalize it? right? How do we show that people are really the most important? And it's not just about culture. It's not just about, you know, sort of the way we treat employees. It's about bringing those employees and those people in the door. And I think that's a really key part, which is, okay, if we know that people are the most important, how are we going to bring them in? How do we focus our time to make sure that we bring them in? And listen, I can walk through my experiences, at least at Robinhood and and others like Databricks that show how I did that, but they're very different. What's really interesting is the way that I was able to hire people at Databricks is very, very different than the way that I was able to hire people at Robinhood. But I think one core thing was pretty central, which is to me, I think that there's always uh, a decision that needs to be made between fighting a fire or hiring a person. And where is that? How do you balance that is really the key. To being able to do this because most people are too busy to really right. spend the time hiring or building the right processes around hiring. And if that's true, then how are you ever, if you don't hire, then you're never going to be able to get out of the fire in order for you to build those processes. And so you have to take a hit somewhere. And I think in both, you know, when I think about all the companies I've been in, I've always had to make that decision, let a fire burn or go and figure out the processes to go hire people the right, right way. Yeah, that's that's great. Is uh, a lot of times when I talk to, especially new managers, they would say, "Yes, hiring is my number one priority." And when I ask them, "What are you actually doing about it?" They would say, "Oh yeah, we have this recruiter, and uh, they will find candidates for me, and that's it. Right? That's all they're doing. They're relying on somebody else to source the candidates." And in my experience, that almost never works. Right? <laughs> you you can't outsource your number one priority to somebody else. It's uh, if it's if it's your responsibility, you just have to do something about it. So I don't know if you have any thoughts to share on that one, but also uh, I would want to dig deeper yeah, I mean, on. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I also yeah, want, you to want be, me to walk through details. I can walk you through all that. Yeah, let's like, do that, man. How deep of a level do you want to go is probably <laughs> my question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think so, so as a leader, so I'm guessing you have several other hiring managers within your organization, right? So I guess like if you run into someone, how would you help them understand like what do they need to do? Like what is their ownership versus what can you reliably outsource it to a recruiter, uh, internal or external? Okay, I'll just walk through at least Robinhood in at least some level of detail. Uh, maybe then we can kick it off from there. So one of the things I think first you have to establish is <laughs> what's my budget, <laughs> right? Yeah. How can I hire? Uh, what does the hiring process look like? What gates do we have to go through in order to approve people to get in the door? And all of those questions. So like at Robinhood, I was quite lucky in the fact that Robinhood really needed to build the team. Right. And they needed to build a team quickly. And when I walked in the door, I didn't have a lot of hiring managers. I really, at the time, had just a couple. And we were very, very much on fire. So there's a lot of reactivity, a lot of fires that had had to be figured out. And so the first thing is I worked with my existing team. And basically, the status is this is like, hey, there's going to be a lot of, I'm going to need you to help me. And so they gave me cover to go fight the fires. And at the same time, I all, we also made a lot of calls on these are fires. And we had to you know, tell this to the executive team, to the company that are just going to burn. We're not going to touch them. We're not going to do anything with it. We're, these, there's lots of inbound things. And I'm just telling you, I'm setting the expectation up front. We're just not going to do anything about it because I have to get people in the door. If I don't get people in the door, like, it doesn't matter how many fires we try to tackle, it'll be never ending. And so we set those expectations. My existing leadership team, when I walked in the door was like, okay, Kayla, we're going to cover you. We'll get your back. We're going to go fight the fires that we can that are really big. I went out to all the leaders in the org and I basically said, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go in a hole and my next six months are going to be hiring and fires are going to burn like crazy. Unless it's an incident or unless it's like super critical, my team's going to handle it. Here's what's going to happen. And I got sign off to go do that. And then I dug, right? And then so I figured out my head count. I strategized, built out the org chart around what's what's it going to look like. And for me, I had to hire a lot of people. And so key things were, were really, there are a couple of key things. One, I really needed to focus on senior talent and I needed to focus on senior leadership. Because if I can get the senior leadership in, then these guys can go and get delegated and then hire their team underneath, right? right. And so those, that was really, really key is I need to really focus on those things. And then I had to go look at, well, how do we bring them in? What's my budget? Like, do we have hiring committees? Who says what? How do we do these? Things? Who passes? What are the right bars? Who signs off on people hiring? Really figured out that process and really optimized it for being able to hire quickly yeah. and being able to hire the right talent got the recruiting team together, really sort of walked them through some of the process. And I, I worked with them really tightly to help like build a really tight, very, very, very nice process. And so like a lot of times when I, like the way I did it in Robinhood is I created like a, a single channel where all the hiring managers, all the recruiters and me were there. And we just single, like that channel was only dedicated to leads coming in. Who is, what was the discussion? How fast can we make our, our time to hire? Like we were really focused on these metrics on making sure that we really rotated people in, really gave them a good experience, move things off calendars. Like one mm-hmm. of the things you'll learn, you know, you learn is in time to hire especially in this market, you've got to move quickly, 
right? And so you don't have time, you know, to, to like three weeks, four weeks, just to schedule out your interview loops. I made sure that if we had P0 candidates, I don't care what's on your calendar, you move it. Right. right. If a P0 candidate comes in the door, we make sure that that person gets on the schedule and we get interviews and we get turnaround times. And so it's just the optimization of a lot of that process and getting things in place really helped. And so we actually went from when I joined Robinhood, we were around 40 people. And then today we were about 146 people. So we hired about 100 people within a year. Amazing. So, so it was a that's with huge. a 76% acceptance rate. In wow, our, that's fascinating. Uh, so it's like two people roughly uh, a week, right? It's yeah. it's incredible, incredible growth. One of the biggest challenges that people run into is, um, is actually not the budget, right? Like almost uh, every single team has some hiring budget available. The challenge is like, how do you build that funnel? Where do you source the candidates from? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it helped you all over Robinhood. So uh, it probably it does. has a lot of brand recognition, right? So have you seen any unconventional sourcing tricks that work rather than just posting it on your website and putting it on LinkedIn and reaching out to people? Like, do you have any other trips and tricks to source the right people? I wish I'd, I had a great answer for you, Arsha. Like, I wish I had something that people could use, but uh, there there isn't. I mean, I found even when I was at Databricks or others, it's just elbow grease, right? Yeah. It is working hard through your network, working with your recruitment te- recruiter team, if you've got one in the company, along with the way that I've done it at both places, I paired my internal recruiting team with an external recruiting team to open up the top of that funnel as wide as I could. And it's just a lot of work. It's really digging in into your network and pinging people and reaching out and finding people that you know in order to do things. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. When the pandemic started, a friend and I started this Thursday night Zoom poker game, right? Where we just, every Thursday night, we would just play poker. And then like over the pandemic, like it grew into this group. I hired two people from that group (laughs) 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 that came from that poker, that poker night. It's just, you know, like it's, it's, you're, you're constantly like just pulling. So it can come from anywhere. You just got to be you know, eyes open, you got to dig a lot. And I got to tell you it, I worked really, really hard, both at Databricks and at Robinhood in order to really recruit and bring the team over. So I wish I had a magic formula. I wish there was something that you could do to say, oh, go to this university or, oh, there's great places to go. But it really was in, you know, sort of instilling a culture of hiring is important, talent and people are important and making sure that those people also carried and instilled that, right? So that the people that I hired also carried that forward. So they reached out in their networks, right? And so what you'll find is once we started getting a good amount of people coming on board that carried that, they also, that spread their network, right? The top of the funnel opens up wider. They start referring people. And so when you look at a lot of our hires, it's, it's a lot of great referrals because as we started getting those bases, that just started coming in. Yeah. And so, yeah, I wish there was a magic formula, man. And I mean, at least in my experience, I'd love if someone told me if there's ways to do this easier, but I don't have any. Right. <laughs> yeah. For, for me, uh, some of my best hires have been through just referrals. Mostly people I got together at conferences, other peers, but obviously that doesn't scale. But yeah, it's... Uh, I haven't seen any interesting 
formulas, repeatable formulas either. Now, you also mentioned something interesting, which is defining that process of hiring, like figuring out how do you keep track of what's in, who's in the pipeline? How do you make sure you turn them around quickly, defining an interview process? Do you have thoughts on, you know, the types of like any formalization of the process? Do you have a template in, in the sense that, you know, we got to figure out who's the interview panel or what kind of uh, structure do you put around interviews? Because a lot of times it could just go all kinds of different directions if you don't manage it. Um, any suggestions on that? I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot. I mean, when it comes to the the hiring process, right, there's just a lot of detail that can be in there. And I think in a lot of instances, many companies don't spend a lot of attention to that. For example, you, you know this, if you're, this actually goes back to uh, my entrepreneur experience, right? Mm-hmm. When you have a sales pipeline, right. you know, hiring pipeline is very similar. You go down in your in your upside down triangle, right? Like you're yeah. going, you're narrowing your funnel. You you want to start with what well, what did, how are you getting your leads? You know, referrals through your recruiters. Making sure that you're you're very in your strategy that you're very specific about the types of hires. Am I hiring an L3 engineer? Am I hiring an L6 manager? Like, where am I? Where is it? What location is acceptable? Like, well, and also there's ranges, right? Like I'm acceptable here, not just as an L3, but maybe an L4, maybe an L6, depending upon where those things are. Being opportunistic about the hires. For example, I strategize who I'm going to hire for. This month, I really wanted to hire an L3. Two months from now, I really wanted to hire an L5, but the L5 may show up opportunistically this Mm -hmm. month, right? right? Not next month. How do you challenge for those types of things? And so just building out the process, making sure you have your templates. What does your interview panel look like? Uh, Making sure you've got the right people probing on the right things. Yeah. Making sure that Again, going back to scheduling, scheduling, I think, is the number one area of, I would say, time waste, right, is making sure that it's like when I look at the pipeline, we have a time to schedule. In that time to schedule with my recruiters, there is a green, yellow, red, right? If a candidate is in red, then I'm like, what's going on? Is it because the candidate can't schedule or is it because my team or the interview panels can't schedule? And the recruiters have to stay on top of that. If we're in yellow because we're like, hey, this person you know, in their time to schedule is in that phase is reaching like past two weeks, three weeks, then I'm like, what's going on, right? Where can we go and poke? Is it on my side? If it's on my side, our hiring managers should be poking and making sure those interview panels get in. And it's just keeping these metrics of, What's my time to schedule? Obviously, what's my time to hire? What's my time to offer? All of those things, time to, if you have, like, we have hiring committees. So mm-hmm. what's my time to hiring committee? How many candidates have been rejected from hiring committee for need more signal or not no hire? Like all of these things you have to dig into. And the thing that I found the most valuable is I had all of this in a single channel. So all of my managers, all my leaders, and myself saw every candidate their kickbacks, their turnaround, the reds, the yellows, the greens, all in a channel. And so I could keep track of, I micromanaged this, you know, for the first six months of the process on what's going on, who's going in, what are the things. And then once I got my leaders and they got the process and they instilled it, then I could just step back and then they've got it. And then they take their own pipelines and run with it. 
Right, right. right. So, that, so that process actually also incentivizes or promotes some sort of uh, gamification of the process, right? Because all the managers, directors are in the same channel and you, everyone can see everybody else's numbers. Who's yep. running con- continuously red, green, yellow? You can see all of that stuff. That's amazing. Yep. Data-driven hiring, right? Yeah, it's a hard process, right? But I think what we've learned is it works really, really well. And I think our hiring managers and our leaders have seen that. And they've then taken that and instilled it. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier, which is let the fires burn. It's also something that I've heard repeatedly from Reid Hoffman. I listened to his podcast. For those of you who don't know, he's the co-founder of LinkedIn, and he is a big believer in let the fires burn, right? You got to focus on what's actually important. If you try to fight every single fire, you're, you're going to end up being burned by it. So taking a step back, if hiring is your number one priority, focus on it. Focus on building a great talent team makes a lot of sense, and it's a good long-term decision. So now, you know, you have a lot of things going for you. It's, you know, Robinhood, Databricks, Capital One, all really, really good brand names, a lot of resources. Now, when you have candidates who are in the pipeline, you know, everyone is happy with it, um, the, the whole process, the, you're extending an offer. In this kind of an environment where good candidates are either very happy with their current positions or they typically have multiple offers on hand, how do you make things uh, more exciting for them? Obviously, the the cash, equity, bonus, the compensation is one piece, which is obviously very important. Um, any other things that you've observed that can you know sway the decision in your favor? Yeah, generally, I think there are three levers that you've got for people. You've got the compensation lever. You've got like you know, are they you know comp? Is the comp good? The second lever is, do I like the people that I work with? And then the third level is, do I like what I work on? Hmm. Right. Like, I feel like, you know, there's obviously others, but to me, generally, by and large, those are the three major levers you've got. And so you've got to be able to hit these three levers. I would say that you could win people if you can get two out of the three. You can never win people if you only got one out of the three. Right. Right. So if my comp is good and what, and the people are good, but what I work on is good it's okay. Like I can, you know, things can change, you know, I'm doing, but if, you know, the comp is good, but the people that I work with are not good, but what I work on is cool. mm, That person, you know, like, is that really where they want to go? If they've got multiple options, they would probably rather find somewhere where they can get two or three out of the three as at best. So one, I would say that's the way I sort of look at things. These are the three things. And so uh, one of the things I would also say that I think has been really important for me in hiring these people is I don't interview them as much as I allow them to interview me. Um, and I think that's very key. Any single leader or senior IC or even not senior IC, I've gone on people, I always do this thing that I call the reverse interview, mm-hmm. which I basically, I get in front of them and, you know, Harshil, if you were my interview candidate, I'd be like, hey, most of the time in interviews, most people leave five minutes at the very end of the interview for you to ask the interviewer like their questions. I reverse it. I say, okay, you have 20 minutes and you can ask me whatever question you want. You interview me. And I make them, I make them know that if at the end of your interview, if my answers aren't sufficient, it's okay to say, hey, I don't think this is a good fit or, hey, maybe this isn't the right time. And by the way, I've had people do that. I've had people in the middle go like, Hey, this sounds cool, but probably not the right fit for me. And I'm like, awesome. We shake hands. We look good. And that person moves on. Right. And I think like, it's a great angle to do this. And the second thing I think is 
I do not put sweet icing on anything. When you ask me questions about what's going on at Robinhood or Databricks or Capital One, I don't try to gloss anything. I don't try to make anything sound awesome. In fact, I tell them very much the real pros and I think the real cons of the business and the situation that I'm in. Like if you talk to me and you say, am I going to tell you all of this really, really cool stuff that you've got to do at our current stage? No, I would tell them I don't have anything that's like super, super that you can get deep in. I'm dealing with fundamental problems and I'll tell them like, I've got fundamental problems. This is the thing that I'm worried about. This is the thing that you'll, you'll probably work on. And I'm very, very straightforward with them. And I don't gloss. I don't add icing. I don't put cherries on top. I just tell them the way it is. And I think that that carries across because, you know, I'm bringing authenticity and I don't want them walking in the door being surprised. Yeah. Right. That's the last thing that I want. Yeah. They'll come in with a very trusted mindset, like, hey, this team, very authentic, transparent. So they're, they're going to get what they saw. Um, and, and hopefully stay because of that, right? right? Because I'm not pulling wool over their eyes. They're going to walk in and, and they'll be like, Caleb, you said things were crazy and chaotic. You weren't kidding. <laughs> right? I'll be like, yep. <laughs> but, yeah. so, but here's the thing is like some people want that, right? right? And those are the people that I want. And then some people don't want that. And so they're like, hey, I'm really at this point in my career, really looking at digging in really deep on certain areas. I want to be a solver in this area. And I'll tell them like, hey, we're not at that space, yeah. right? And I think that's good because you're like, I don't want them coming in, even if they're great talent and then their talent's not being used in the right way. That'll just yeah. make them frustrated. Yeah, and you just establish a really good relationship so you can come back to them in a year or a couple of years whenever it's the right timing for both of you. That's right, which has happened. Yeah. It has definitely happened already. Yeah, so, so tell me more about this topic you touched, which is retain them, right? So people usually you know, they would join and they would, you know, the first year would be super exciting for them. They would be at their productive best, but retaining them uh, and not just retaining, but engaging them uh, continuously, challenging them continuously is also a big challenge. Other than just, you know, comp and equity, that's one piece, obviously. And interesting work is very important. Any other thoughts on like, how do you make it challenging and engaging for your team, especially in this remote world where there's not a lot of opportunity to be in person, to be, build that personal uh, relationships with a lot of people? Yeah, I think there's, there's probably two things. It's important to maybe, maybe three. Uh, one, as leaders, we have to be able to paint a vision and a strategy that people believe in, right? I think that's first. Uh, second, I think you need to enable your people, right? Give them freedom, give them accountability, enable them to be able to like, we're, we're hiring really, really smart people. Like go, go screw up, go make mistakes, go do things. Right. And then the third, I think is we have to be flexible in like many times people will go into something, figure out though, that's not really what I want to do, or that's not really what I'm good at doing. Right. And then being able to be flexible and think about okay, well, what, what can we, how can you apply those skills and where is it that is the right place to be able to fit you where you can, the way that I always call it is, you know, how can you be in your power band, right? When yeah. you think about like, you know, a motorcycle or a car, right? Like there's a power band in your RPMs that you're hitting it on all four cylinders. And many times, many people, you know, they're not quite, or they're either in overdrive, they're getting burnt out, right? Mm -hmm. Or they're just not hitting all four cylinders. So how do you find that power band for them? And being able to find that if it's not in there, being flexible about being able to do that. 
And the other thing is, is like as leaders, as managers, and by the way, you know, like I struggle with this, everybody struggles with this is, you know, how do I keep in contact, be proactive in reaching out to these people as much as I can, if I think that they're not in their power band or making sure that they're in their power band, if they feel like they're in their power band, right? Like always keeping in touch with your people and listen, like I don't have a magic formula for this either, right? So I think this is this is something that I'm we're still struggling with, of course, and I think everyone probably is, is making sure that you're keeping in touch with those people, making sure that they are enabled, making sure that you do have a strategy and vision that they can believe in, and making sure that we are finding that power band. Like I think it's a very difficult thing to do and is a continuous, constant process that is never over. Right, right. So now, since you have more than 100 people in your organization, what kind of check-ins or, you know, like, how do you get that information as a leader from such a large organization? Like, what are your tactical things you do? Uh, Well, I mean, first, it's hire great leaders that know how to do this. And hopefully that they also hire great leaders that know how to do this. But I would say that there's two things that I probably do that maybe put me more in touch with people, even if there are, you know, lower levels, right? That's probably the key is how does someone who is new, perhaps junior, how do I get as a CISO, a connection with them, right? Because that's really, really tough, especially the bigger that you get. And so minus just your general management philosophies and how to do that well through an org, uh, there are two things that I think keep me in touch with that. The first is Q&A. So we have in sessions, uh, all out Q&A, people can ask whatever questions they want. Leadership and myself help answer those questions. But the second thing, and actually maybe there's three, but the second thing that's been really interesting is and in this remote environment, whenever I have slivers on my calendar, that are open, which by the way is rare. I'm trying to work on that. This year, my goal is to get half my calendar free if that's possible. But like, if when I have slivers of open time in my calendar, I will randomly pick people in my org, no matter level on Slack, ping them and and say, hey, are you around or do you have like five minutes to catch up? And I will jump on just random people and just talk to them. Like, how are you feeling? Hey, I ask them for advice. Like, even if you're, an L2 engineer in my org who just joined three months ago, I asked them, hey, do you have any advice for me? Right? Like, is there anything that you think I should look at that I'm not? You know, like all of the, and I just ask, how are you feeling? What do you think about the org? Are there things that uh, surprise you, both negative and positive? Right? And I just ask sort of these questions and I get, I've gotten amazing information through these just random when I have open slots, pinging people and asking sort of what's going on. And that's been one pretty amazing thing. And the other is we've just started doing all hands and happy hours at our company headquarters location on Thursdays. And so I've been able to like really sit down and meet with people and just talk about things that aren't even work related, which is the best. That's actually really the best part uh, of doing that. I was hoping you were going to mention donut on Slack as one of the ways of connecting with people. (laughs) Uh, You know, so here's the thing is like, that is the more formal way of doing what I've been doing, which is like pinging people. The problem with, with donut that I've got is one, uh, I think you're right. I need to focus more on making that a little bit more scalable because I think donut can make my method a little bit more scalable where we could say our leaders should do that. Like once a month, you should just randomly talk with somebody. Once a week, you should randomly talk with somebody. Uh, so I do agree. That's probably a good method to use that. I have been doing the more manual method of that. 
Nice. Yeah, I, I love the fact that what you mentioned is uh, just asking open-ended questions, right? Because it's not, it opens up so many different avenues that as a leader of 150 people org, you, you might not even know about some of the, the, the things that all the folks on the, f- uh, the front lines have to deal with. Um, so a lot of these things you talked about, Caleb, I'm sure you learned the art and science of it over several years of practicing again and again. Now, if if there was a new manager, if somebody who's just entering people leadership role, are there any resources that they can at least start reading about, learning about these things in terms of how to be a great hire, hiring manager, how to be a great people leader? Yeah, you know, I, I wish I had a good answer for you on that, Arshil, but I am, um, unlike most, I think I, I don't read a ton of management leadership books. And so there aren't particular ones that I would call out. I would call myself less of an academic in that and more of a school of hard knocks in that (laughs) where I have learned plenty of ways of failing in this uh, management and leadership uh, scenario and just have learned my own sort of intuition and lessons learned on being able to do that. So, you know, there's not a particular one that I would say, go read. I'm the worst person to ask for this level of advice. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing since you have been a very active advisor to a lot of people in different worlds, I'm guessing you would also have some sort of men- mentorship relationship, advisor relationship, uh, at least uh, when you were early in your career. You know, maybe. You know, one of the things that I think that has actually been a struggle for me is I have wanted some of that mentorship leadership, you know, like I've wanted, I've wanted to have someone at which, you know, I really idealized and, you know, I wanted to to get mentorship from people. Mm -hmm. I just haven't, I would say the closest was actually maybe the CEO of my first company. You know, he would be probably one of the closest that I would say would be more of a mentor to me, but by and large, I don't. Or she'll have someone at which I've been able to go to. And that's been a real, you know, struggle for me because I I feel like I should, right? I should have that. And I really need that, but I don't know where to go to get it. Hmm. Interesting. One of the advice I got a long time ago was mentors and advisors are really good for a certain problem that you're struggling with. But especially if you're growing in your career super quickly your problem set will change uh, every six months. So you may have different advisors, different people who guide you through that journey. And that's what I've done personally. And it's not one person over the past, you know, several years. People change every few months, depending on what we're struggling with at the moment. I do have things like, you know, I've got an executive coach, you know, I also have a Robinhood CISO advisory board, but to me, I feel like a mentor is is different level, right? That is right. a personal connection level, right? That is a thing that is not just about my business or my strategic decisions in my corporate life, but about my personal life, right? Because and especially with me, my corporate and business life are kind of the same thing. Yeah, my you know my my personal like it's just really tied and ingrained and. You know, I like that mentor to me is someone that has to be personal right? and at the same time be at that level that can also help me, I think, at an executive business position. And that's like really hard for me to find. I really need to find those people though. Yeah. I don't know where to look. <laughs> I think that's the biggest challenge, right? It's really hard to find somebody who's who can 
coach and be a mentor, but also has the time to do that. I think a more accessible way and not exactly a replacement for mentors, but what you mentioned is an executive coach. Now, if you take yourself five or 10 years before now, would you recommend somebody else in that position uh, getting an executive coach? Does I that do. Help you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I recommend anybody getting an executive, everybody getting an executive coach, especially as an executive. Because you need someone who has, uh, you know, if you don't have a, a mentor, right? Like, for example, myself, you know, you need to brainstorm things around the, you know, everyone has a very specific perspective uh, and view as to what's going on on a decision. And being able to bounce those things against someone who has been in these situations, is experienced in these situations is, you know, unlimitedly helpful, right? There's no question my executive coach has looked at me and said, Caleb, I don't know what you're thinking or what you're smoking with that. (laughs) (laughs) That does not sound like, like that does not sound right at all. You need to go double check on some things. Like you need to go do this. Right. And so it's really great to have that person who can really kind of push back and keep you in check on, Hey, like, are you sure that that's the right thing? Have you looked at this? Have you thought about that? Well, maybe the different perspectives are this. And, and I think that's been extraordinarily helpful. Like I would have made a lot more mistakes if it hadn't have been for that. That's a phenomenal piece of advice. I think that's relevant and very actionable for a lot of people who may not have access to a great group of advisors or mentors, but at least, you know, uh, executive coaches are much more accessible. Caleb, it has been a pleasure having you on this podcast. I'm going to remember this, let the fires burn. Uh, It's important to focus on the priorities. With that, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Arsha. Thanks for listening to the Future of Application Security. If you've enjoyed this episode or you are new to the show, I'd love to have you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any episode. And if you like the podcast, I'd be grateful if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.